brief comment before this episode of Inspired by Yarra gets underway. And that is to note that this conversation was recorded well before COVID-19 was impacting our community, our nation, (laughs) and indeed, our world. But we still believe that the information shared in this conversation is relevant and helpful. And so we wanted to bring it to you, despite the current challenges that we're all experiencing. In fact, given the call for physical distancing that we're hearing and adhering to right now, I believe that it emphasises all the more the need for social connection. And so with that in mind, I encourage you to consider sharing this episode and others from our growing library of conversations with Yarra Old Grammarians here at Inspired by Yarra. Take care, look after one another, enjoy this conversation, and now on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. This is the podcast that's been created to enhance, connect, and inspire the Yarra Valley Grammar community and beyond. So wherever you're tuning in from today, thank you and welcome. My name is Paul Joy and it is my delight to sit down and have conversation with Yarra Old Grammarians, affectionately known as YOGs, and together we'll trace back through their old former glory days traipsing through the corridors and the sports fields and the science laboratories and the art galleries and the art classrooms and all other manner of school life here at Yarra Valley Grammar. Today, I'm going to sit down with Jason Mattingly, the professor, no less. Professor Jason Mattingly from the class of 1982. Now, Jason is into psychology. He has so many letters after his name has so many academic accolades and research papers that have got his name printed at the bottom. He is a researcher, he is a writer, he is a deep, deep thinker into neuroscience and brain elasticity. Fascinating conversation ahead. I'm going to begin by asking him, where are you, Professor Jason Mattingly, right now as you share with us? So I'm uh, sitting in my office at the moment at the University of Queensland, uh, where I'm a researcher and an academic. Uh, Right now, it's uh, quarter past 11 in the morning, Um, quite rainy outside, very humid, um, but I'm sitting in air-conditioned comfort uh, at the moment. Fantastic. I wonder whether you can uh, take us back then to the beginnings. You started Year 7 at Yarra Valley Grammar. Uh, maybe even as far back, uh, sorry, that's a bit rude, but 1977, <laughs> you were a year seven lad. What was it like that's back right. there? Did you wear shorts? Were you wearing a tie? Did you wear your school shoes well? <laughs> uh, yep, we were definitely shorts in the summertime um, and a school tie. Um, yeah, I, I started there. I, I was a, went to a primary school in, in Doncaster where I was living with my parents at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, I just remember starting at Yarra in uh, what was then Form One, Year Seven, uh, which was part of the was part of the junior school back then. I think the philosophy was that uh, when you came from from outside, uh, it was a bit of a shock to introduce you to the whole school at once. So uh, Year Seven or Form One was uh, the most senior year in in the junior school. 
Um, and I, I do remember it being a pretty overwhelming experience. Lots and lots of people, um, an enormous campus, much bigger than the, uh, the primary school that I'd been at, which was just a, a small number of buildings and one tiny oval down the bottom. So uh, certainly an overwhelming experience, but um, uh, very quickly managed to settle in and uh, very much uh, started to enjoy life uh, in this new place. You know, amazing opportunities for sport, um, meeting new people. I had a handful of uh, students that moved uh, from my primary school to uh, into Yarra as well. And so I wasn't completely alone, but very quickly started to make friends uh, with others, uh, all boys, of course, at that time. Um, and uh, yeah, very much uh, enjoyed the experience of uh, starting, starting in year seven at Yarra. Fantastic. And I wonder, can you recall how did you connect? Was it because you could throw and catch a ball? Was it because you could uh, talk about current affairs? Was it because you had the best lunch? What was it that uh, connected <laughs> you, do you think? Uh, probably definitely not uh, being able to talk about current affairs. That, that, that was something that probably came a bit later. But, uh, yeah, definitely playing sport. That was a, a real um, binding factor, I think, in those early years. In fact, throughout my time at Yarra Sport was uh, seen as a very important activity. Um, and so, uh, yeah, remember meeting friends, making friends. Initially, I think we started with athletics and uh, made friends through running a 100-metre trial. And uh, not that I was particularly good at that, but you, you ended up, uh, you know, with that sort of competitive spirit and you'd make friends uh, uh, that way. So, um, yeah, definitely sport was a core uh, binding uh, factor back in those days. And and what do you remember what you would have played school sport probably on a Saturday? Do you remember what sports you uh, sort of tended to, to have a go at? Yep, yep. So in summer, it was definitely cricket, always cricket. Um, have very fond memories of uh, training during the week in the nets and then uh, heading out to other schools early on a a Saturday morning, usually overnight praying that it wouldn't rain because we love to play, but uh, occasionally we, we'd get rained out and that was always disappointing, particularly if you'd gotten your whites and you got all the way to the ground and then, then it started to the heavens open. So, um, uh, yeah, cricket in the summertime. Uh, I seem to recall we, we weren't a particularly strong cricketing team. Um, we had our wins, but we probably had more losses than wins, but it was, uh, it was terrific fun. And uh, in the in the winter time, I played hockey, and we're actually a very strong hockey school, ho hockey team at that time. Um, we had, I think, a couple of people who were playing at the sort of state level, um, and we had a lot of success there in in winter time. Um, I remember, we were absolutely delighted when a new hockey field opened up low down, just near the school bush, or what I remember as being the school bush down the, the back there. And uh, there was a, a brand new hockey field open, so that was terrific for us. We had great fun there. Yeah, that's that's super. And it, it is true that uh, often sport is one of those unifying things that you you know you were all wearing the same jumper, you're all wearing the same shirt or cap or whatever it might be, the uniform that uh, unites you. And uh, you know, no matter what happened during the week, when you get out there on a weekend and you're playing sport, you're on the same team, and you've got to you know look after each other and do your best for for your mates and. Uh, it, it certainly there's a lot of lessons in sport for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, we we learnt a lot. Um, <clears throat> I do have memories back in in that first year, year seven. Uh, it was a teacher, uh, Mr. Archer. I think he was our home form teacher, my home form teacher, 
Um, a big guy with a beard, a deep, gruff voice, pretty scary character, actually a lovely guy, but um, scared, scared us at the time. And I remember part of his training regime was he would uh, put a hockey ball on the ground, hit it as hard as he could and, and make you chase it. Um, that was the sort of training regime to get our fitness up and it was also a good way of him keeping discipline because you knew if uh, you did anything wrong he was going to hit that ball and you'd be running after it. But uh, yeah, great times, fond memories. Yeah, that's terrific. As you uh, progressed through the school, uh, where would we find you in terms of were you likely to be up in the science lab or were you down in the library? Were you lunchtime's out kicking the footy with friends? Were you in the tuck shop? Where would be a, a kind of a hangout place? If I, if somebody was looking for Jason, where would they go? <laughs> I think I was a bit all over the place. I, I definitely, um, you know, we would go to the library from time to time, but I, I wasn't actually at school particularly bookish, I don't think. Um, you know, that, that sort of came later. But, um, no, we would, we would go out and uh, we'd kick the footy in wintertime. We'd do kick to kick. So you'd find me out on the fields. Um, I do remember in year 12 we had, uh, I guess it was called a common room, and so spent quite a lot of time in there. That was uh, definitely, you know, a, a sort of inner sanctum. We had our own music. We could have make our own coffee and so on, and we, we felt we were very, very independent and very grown up in that place. So you would have found me there a fair bit as well. Yeah, that's that's great. And uh, did... Do you recall, did the students look after that coffee tea-making facility or was it always left to somebody to have to come and clean it up? Uh, it was a complete shambles. No, I mean, there were broken cups, there were mouldy cups, things growing out of corners. There were, I mean, actually, it was it was a fantastic place. You know, there were posters on the wall, some of which were peeling off, some of which I suspect had been there for a decade or more. Um, there were there were bean bags on the floor. That was a thing back then, the old bean bags. Um, people had brought in old sofas. Um, there was an old record player and a, and a cassette tape deck in the corner. Again, very old-fashioned things that I'm sure some listeners to this podcast probably wouldn't be very familiar with. But uh, we thought it was absolutely fantastic, and it was um, it, it was sort of accepted that teachers wouldn't come into that room. So it was very much a feeling that when you were in there, that was the the student hangout, and you'd be left to your own devices. But of course, like most sort of seventeen-year-olds, we were. Uh, pretty disorganised, um, not particularly clean. And so, uh, yeah, I remember the place getting a bit whiffy from, from time to time. Absolutely. And uh, it, look, it is one of the uh, privileges, I suppose, that uh, students today still have in those senior areas. And I think some of those same cups, not that they're still there, but they would look very similar, I think. Things growing out the side, probably right. a couple of broken ones and definitely um, people who get frustrated at the person before who didn't clean up after themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. No, it was, look, it, it was very uh, enjoyable. Um, there were probably nothing like the facilities that Yarra has now, but uh, we enjoyed ourselves. There was plenty of open space, probably a lot more open space back then than there is now. I, last time I visited Yarra, I noticed buildings in places that used to be fields and uh, a building on an area of grass that we used to kick the footy around on. So um, we had a lot of freedom to roam and that was nice. Yes, and, and as you would want a, a great school like Yarra, you want it to continue to grow and evolve and change and, you know, move with the times and continue to, uh, I guess, enhance the opportunities for the students who come through. It, yep, that, that's right. Your your career today, and, and you've got uh, many um, 
I, I guess, flags or banners to your name now. But that would suggest that being an academic, being a researcher, that you might have done okay at school. Do you remember uh, what your subjects were in those later years? Was there a particular field that you were starting to nudge towards even while you're at school? Um, look, I I must admit, when I was in the later years of school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, I was interested in science, um, but I had no real idea what I could do with that. Um, so I think in year 12, you know, obviously I did English and I did mathematics. Uh, I did biology. So already I, I had an interest in the sciences and particularly the, the biological um, sciences. But it wasn't until probably halfway through year 12 that, that I started to realise that, you know, maybe going to university and studying initially a broad science degree was uh, what I wanted to do. Um, and I, I realised early on that two subjects that interest me great, greatly were um, sort of physiology, the physiology of the human body, and psychology, human behaviour, those two things. And I, I became fascinated with this question of how a nervous system, a brain, gives rise to behaviour. And, and so probably when I started in my science degree, that's why uh, I ended up taking subjects like physiology and biology and psychology, and those things came together and shaped the direction I took in my career later on. So, so you've finished Year 12, you've done reasonably well, well enough at least to get into a science course. Tell me a little bit more about where did you go, university life, what's, what course, and then did that lead to further study or did you, you know, sneak overseas for a little while or maybe you studied overseas? What happened sort of after leaving school? Yeah, so when I left school, I, uh, I went to Monash University uh, and, as I said, did a science degree there. And, uh, and again, much like when I first arrived at Yarra, it was sort of overwhelmed with this enormous place, lots of different people from different walks of life. Um, probably realised I'd had a, a fairly sheltered existence in some respects at Yarra up until that point. Um, but uh, very much uh, enjoyed my time at, at Monash. So uh, I worked in, in psychology, in biology. They were my majors in my science degree. Um, and after three years of the basic degree, I had done well enough to get invited to do an honours year, which is a sort of research intensive year of study. Uh, and I did that in, in uh, the School of Psychology at Monash, got very interested in the brain and behaviour. Um, when I finished there, I ended up uh, training in um, clinical neuropsychology, which is um, a sort of area of psychology involved in understanding the effects of brain injury and brain disease on behaviour. And so that was a Master of Science degree at, at uh, Melbourne University. Then I found myself back at uh, Monash after I finished that degree uh, for a PhD. There was a particular uh, professor there at Monash who was um, world-renowned in the area that I was interested in. Uh, and so I went and spent the next uh, four, roughly four years with him uh, and uh, did a PhD. And when I'd finished that, um, got the opportunity to go across to Cambridge University uh, in the UK and I uh, was on a, a National Health and Medical Research Council fellowship, so it's an Australian government-funded scheme that sends uh, young, freshly minted PhDs overseas, and I uh, went and worked in Cambridge for, for several years um, in uh, an organisation called the, the uh, Medical Research Council Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit. And that was absolutely fantastic. Um, met lots of international luminaries, got to work in a fantastic laboratory environment there, 
Um, joined uh, King's College, became a fellow of King's College while I was there. So I was involved in um, tutoring uh, students, Cambridge students, and just becoming part of the, the general life of uh, the college. Uh, places like, like uh, Cambridge and Oxford have a very different university system to what we have in Australia. It's very small student numbers, uh, sort of individual tutorials, almost sort of one-on-one -on -one and academic with a student. And so that was a terrific experience to be uh, a part of that. Uh, and then uh, moved moved back to Australia, and that was in uh, 1998. Uh, moved back to Australia and uh, got a, a an academic position at uh, Melbourne University. Uh, worked there for several years, and then in 2007, there was a new Brain Institute uh, opening up here in Queensland, and uh, I decided to to move up here to head a, a new laboratory and be part of that new initiative. Wow, what a journey! There's a lot of study in there and a lot of degrees and a lot of letters after your name, if you like. Um, in, in the midst of all of that, and, and I know this is an impossible question, but what are some of the, I guess, the discoveries or the, um, I guess, those, those light bulb moments that you can recall in all of that journey where you thought this, this, this brain in this particular sense, neuroscience, this is just remarkable. This is the most extraordinary thing I've ever come to grips with. This is amazing, and I want to spend the rest of my life doing it. Yeah, um, that that is a difficult question. I, I I would say I've been pretty lucky. I've had quite a few of those uh, those moments, and some of them might seem very sort of small and trivial, and others much larger. So just very simple things like trying to understand how the brain decodes the visual world around us. You know, most of us don't think too much about how we see the world. Um, we think about our eyes. We know when things have gone wrong, if we need glasses. And we, we know about people who have things like colour blindness. And we know about diseases like macular degeneration, when people lose a part of their vision uh, through eye disease. But we don't think much about what happens with all that light information once it goes through the eyes and gets registered in your brain. And it turns out to be an incredibly complex thing to kind of decode that light information into coherent objects and allow us to track things that are moving and recognize uh, the faces of people who we know and so on. Um, to the point where it's only very recently that computers have been able to get anywhere close to human levels of performance in things like visual recognition and so on. And actually, with the, the advent of things like artificial intelligence systems, we're, we're getting much closer to human performance levels now. But um, when I first started working on the human visual system and understanding how the brain allows us to recognize things, I had a, a number of those eureka moments looking at just how effortlessly a human brain can recognize a familiar face that perhaps it hasn't seen for 20 years or 50 years even. Um, and so that's, that's one example. The, the other really interesting question that I've been grappling with over many years is how, um, how that mass of nerve cells in your head, the human brain, gives rise to what we call consciousness, just um, our awareness from moment to moment of being awake and alive and interacting with things that are going on around us. Um, we, we actually don't understand how consciousness comes about. Uh, it's very, very interesting. Another thing we take for granted, we wake up, uh, we kind of reboot, we're, con we're conscious again of what, what's going on around us and we go and go to sleep at night, we lose consciousness and we do the same thing over again the next day. What, what is it about what the brain does that, that gives rise to our conscious experience? We, we know it's not 
something that's localized to one part of the brain. You can uh, knock out one part of the brain at a time. You never specifically remove conscious experience. So it seems to be everywhere and nowhere at once. Uh, so that's a, a along the way, a number of research projects I've been involved in, we've made some interesting discoveries about uh, how the brain allows us to be conscious of uh, what's going on around us. There's certainly still many mysteries to be solved, there's no doubt. But one area, at least, that, that maybe you are in a position to be able to comment on, of recent times there's been a a real awakening to be present, to be in the moment, to be uh, aware of your surrounds and who you're with and, and, you know, be in the moment. And you talk of consciousness and the complexity of that. Are, is there a, uh, I don't know, a series of strategies or some thinking routines that you think would actually help us to be present, to be in the moment? And is that a good thing? Is that an aspiration that we should work towards? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, there's a, you're right, there's a lot of uh, popular sort of training programs now to get people to um, be more mindful, as it were, mindfulness awareness, mindfulness training. Uh, and I think there is a place for that. Um, obviously, we want to be um, attending to and processing what's going on here and now. We want to avoid distractions. And actually, one of the, the other research interests I have is how the brain regulates our attention, how it allows us to um, filter filter out things that are currently irrelevant or distracting and to um, prioritise things that are most important for what we're doing right at this very moment. Uh, so developing strategies to uh, keep our attention focused is is a very important sort of research endeavor. As I say, it's something that we've worked on a bit. Having said that, I think um, we also need to be able to disengage from the present moment in order to plan what we want to do in the future. And I think there's a lot to be said for sort of quiet moments of reflection, thinking about uh, what it is we want to do in the future, sort of almost disengaging from the here and now and allowing ourselves to project forward and think about why am I doing the things I'm doing? Why am I studying the things I'm studying at the moment? Um, what are the types of uh, jobs that I might like to pursue in the future? Um, what's my place in the world? What's happening in the world? How can I make a contribution? Those kinds of things. So to come back to your question, I do think um, learning to, um, to pay attention to what's going on here and now is very important, both in terms of uh, monitoring what's out in the world and monitoring our, our internal thought processes, but also having those sort of moments of disengagement, as it were, and being able to think and reflect on um, the future and, and how we want to be a part of the future and how, how we want to sort of regulate our lives going forward. Is, it's very important as well. It's, it's fascinating. I, there are so many questions, and I guess that's what keeps somebody like yourself in the field for so long is because the more you discover, the more you realise, I wonder how that works. And then there's just, it just continues to discover what we don't yet know. And so let's find out if we can work out how that works and why does that happen and why does that trigger that? And then, I mean, that's going to lead to more and more and more. So I, I think just at, at, a, at a fraction of what we've just been able to chat about now, I can understand why it's an area of research and study that is a fascination of yours lifelong, it would appear. Yeah, that's right. Look, I think um, th this area of, of brain science generally and human behaviour, they're, they're two of the last great 
frontiers in science in many ways. Um, uh, sort of a famous quote from a guy called Francis Crick and many uh, students at the school will probably know that name. He was one of the co-discoverers of the structure of DNA. And uh, Francis Crick, when he, he finished his sort of major work in genetics, he turned his attention to understanding the brain and behavior. Uh, many people don't know that. And he, over many years, really believed that the last great sort of scientific discoveries to be made would be made in the area of uh, human brain science, human consciousness, um, what, what's the brain basis for behavior? Why do we feel the way we do? How do we see things? How do we control our actions? How do we plan for the future? All of those sorts of things. And we're really just scratching the surface in that area. And there's a lot of new and very exciting technologies coming online now, which allow us to not only measure people's behavior, but also at the same time, look at how their brain activity is giving rise to that behavior. So yeah, it's a, it's a very, very exciting area to work in. And uh, certainly any students who might be listening to this who are, are studying at the moment, um, I'd certainly urge them to contemplate a, a career in science, particularly neuroscience or, or psychology, very exciting areas. We're speaking with Professor Jason Mattingly from the class of 1982. Jason, it's, I haven't done the maths, but that's what, 20, 30, 40, is that 40 years? <laughs> I'm sorry Coming about up that. for 40 years, yeah. You're making me feel bad now. <laughs> you, um, you spoke uh, briefly about one of the things that fascinates you is how the brain um, switches on, switches off consciousness and, and then unconsciousness, but also that notion of facial recognition and that from somebody from 40 years ago, you can recognize them almost instantaneously. However, I might do be able to do that. I might recognize them, but there's a, often a gap missing, and that is, what was their name again? Yeah, that's a very, very common experience. Have you yeah, been so to reunions and been in that situation and you go, oh, I'm, it's coming, it's coming. What's going on yeah. there? Yeah, I have that experience all the time. I think it does probably get get worse as we get older. Um, and I think there are two factors there. One is uh, memory, our memory, um, let's say efficiency of memory tends to decline a bit with age. But also, if you think about it, um, the store of, of seen faces gets larger and larger as you get older and older. Uh, so there are, we're sort of dealing with two challenges there. But yeah, you're right, um, it, it's difficult. And why is it that we sort of recognize the face uh, and we can't get the name? We don't know the answer to that, but I could give you some, some sort of educated guesses. One of the reasons is that although there's, a, I guess, an infinite number of different faces that we might come across, and they're all unique in their own way, um, other than identical twins, everyone has their own face that looks unique. But names tend to overlap. So I know lots of Pauls and I know lots of Jasons and lots of Davids and Peters and Angelas and Amandas and so on. Um, and so there's a lot of redundancy in names. Uh, and it's, it's getting that unique face, that one snapshot that belongs to just that one person to match with uh, that name amongst many where there's overlap. And I suspect that's one of the reasons uh, for the problem. What's interesting is that, of course, we do have the name knowledge in there. So you go, you often go through that mental rehearsal and then someone will say, oh, I think that was Paul. And you go, oh, that was it. You, you instantly know. So that name is in there. It's hard to access. And uh, one of the things that uh, biologists and psychologists have spent a lot of time 
working on over the last 50 years is human memory and how we store information, uh, how we access that information, and how memory is actually a dynamic process. Um, your memories of events, uh, they're not uh, set in stone, so to speak. They're changing all of the time. Um, and there's very interesting work in the area of things like eyewitness testimony. Um, the more often you ruminate and think about a memory, the more you're reactivating that and it can be changed uh, in, in many different and interesting ways. So that's just one kind of discovery we've made about the nature of human memory. And potentially, just on that example, potentially that can um, that could lead to a change in an outcome, for example, if there's an investigation into something, we're talking about eyewitnesses, they recall it went like this in a certain series of events or certain faces or certain, I think the person was there, no, they were there, and then, they, you know, they lock something in, they make a statement, yeah. and then presumably, naturally, you would go away and you might process that some more, you'd think about it, you'd, you'd kind of moonerate on it for, for some time and, and then actually your memory changes and are you changing exactly. to be more accurate do you think or are you changing and to come to believe a new story that you might be creating yeah look i think a lot of it is is unconscious um but but yes the this idea of memory as a dynamic and changing process um you know, we know that at the time of uh, encoding a, a new memory, at the time that the event is happening, uh, your particular emotional state, your um, your attention, what you happen to be paying attention to, what you're prioritizing, all of those things change the nature of the memory that gets laid down. And that's why things like eyewitness testimony, you know, police really want to know from as many witnesses as possible in order to try and triangulate the, the truth, the actual events, because you'll have one person who was incredibly anxious and, and, and afraid in that situation and somebody else who was perhaps a distant bystander and what, didn't even know what was happening. And so they're in a, a more sort of neutral, relaxed state of mind. And the memories, the nature of the memories that are encoded for that same event will be quite different for those two individuals. Uh, and so it, it's very important now. And in fact, a lot of police investigative techniques have been influenced by uh, what happens, uh, uh, the new discoveries that have been made in the area of, of psychology, in particular forensic psychology. Uh, so interview techniques, methods for um, uh, probing knowledge of, of eyewitnesses, um, all of those sorts of things have been changed dramatically over the last 20 years or so due to, to um, research in, in forensic psychology. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. It, it really is. Most people who are listening to this have some connection back to Yarra Valley Grammar. That's why they found the uh, the podcast inspired by Yarra or somebody has led them to here and, and offered them, you know, this is a conversation worth listening to. And, and mind you, those who are listening, if you've come this far, we'd love you to share it with others and, and, uh, and give us some feedback and those sorts of things. But school Yarra Valley Grammar uh, is part of what connects us. It's part of what connects you and I. And so therefore, there's the chance of people being educated, being learners, uh, students, and memory comes a lot into uh, learning and uh, particularly around the idea of exams and uh, studies. And do you have any suggestions, recommendations, tips, strategies to help, whether it be improve our memory or 
study techniques or how to recall the right information, the useful information? How, how can we be better students as we try and tap into the, the power of the mind? Mm, fantastic question. Um, look, I've actually been involved in a research centre that is based here at the University of Queensland, but we have collaborators in Melbourne and, and other cities around Australia. It's called the Science of Learning Research Centre. Um, you can find it uh, on the web. I think it's um, www.slrc.com.au. That might be it. Um, but anyway, if you look up Science of Learning Research Centre, you'll find us. And uh, that's exactly what we've been interested in in researching. What what can we learn from experimental psychology and biology, neuroscience, brain science, to help uh, teachers and to help students be more effective and efficient learners? Um, and as you might imagine, just like the brain, it's very complex. Um, we know there are simple things that we can do to be better learners. Um, having good regular sleep is one simple thing that, that has an enormous impact. Um, but also the, the, the way that we approach learning can make a difference. So um, having, uh, keeping attention focused on a task and then moving on to another task uh, rather than doing a sort of intensive study of one thing over and over again for long periods, it's quite good to um, mix up the study a little bit um, to move from one, one task to another. Um, it's also very important to use uh, feedback. Um, so this is why there's currently a, a trend for schools to do more and more um, testing and, and mock exams and that kind of thing because uh, there's a real benefit from being put into the kind of environment that you're going to be in when you do real exams and to be getting feedback and to learn how to use that feedback to uh, improve your, your performance. So um, things like blocking study, that's one. Um, things like um, intermingling uh, different subjects or different uh, topics, that's another one. Uh, and being very aware of using um, feedback um, almost testing yourself as you go. I, when I read papers uh, or I'm thinking about difficult research or a research problem or an analysis that I'm doing, I'll often actively formulate my own hypotheses about what I'm going to find before I perform the calculation uh, or before I look at the next step in the research. So I, I'm sort of actively challenging myself to come up with an answer and then I'm testing my hypothesis against what I actually find. And that's a very effective uh, form of learning and there's a lot of research that's that's gone into that topic. It's a it's a huge and, and complex topic and like I said if people are interested in this then have a look at that website on the Science of Learning Research Centre. There are some uh, tips there, a set of sort of tip sheets on um, more effective learning. That's great. I, I just want to want to dive a little bit deeper into the, the notion of study and, and as a student how do I get the best out of um, what I'm experiencing, whether it be in the classroom, whether it's something I'm watching, whether it's something I'm reading. For you, you you've said you're almost challenging yourself to, to make uh, connections and to uh, try and almost problem solve in the moment. I wonder, are you doing all that in, in your mind, in your head, or are you taking notes of some sorts? Do you understand or value scribbling in the margin? Do you make little doodles and visual notations? What's what's a way for to help students, whether they're, you know, 13, 14, or whether they're 17, 18, or indeed whether they're, you know, maybe it's a, a parent who's going back to do some study? What, what's the idea of note-taking and how valuable is it? I, I think note-taking is... is uh certainly worthwhile. Um, 
it's something where it makes it explicit that you've stopped for a moment and you're doing what I mentioned before, that sort of moment of um, disengagement and reflecting on what it is you've just um, read or you've just heard and trying to um, find a, um, a core message in what you've read or what you've heard, um, a key um, point of learning and, and make that note in a margin or in a, on an iPad, whatever it might be. Um, just a, a brief snapshot or summary of a key conceptual element that you've got out of what you've just heard over the last, perhaps it's just five or ten minutes. I think one can overdo things like note-taking. If you try and sort of verbatim write down everything that you're reading or hearing, um, you're really just replicating what's there already. That's why things like um, the, the, the old, you know, getting out the highlighter and, and highlighting passages of text, it's not very effective as a learning tool. Um, because it, it's it's actually rather passive and it's not adding anything new. It's just um, really highlighting what somebody else has said. What you want to do is stop, think about the key conceptual element of what you've just encountered and make your own summary or make your own note about what that means and how that fits with other things you know. Finding links is is very important. I think for anyone learning something new, the biggest challenge is developing what psychologists would call a schema. It's uh, a framework to hang facts and, and new knowledge off. Um, and when you're a new learner, everything's novel and you don't know what the building's going to look like yet. You, you don't know how to put the scaffolding up. Uh, and so every time you, you make that note, just thinking about how does that link to something else I've learned? What, what's the conceptual link? This, this is what will facilitate the building of that scaffolding. And, and that's why experts are always so good at remembering facts. You, you sort of wonder how they can remember so much stuff, but it's because they've already got the building in front of them and they're just hanging the facts off, off the margins, whereas new learners find that, that very difficult. I really appreciate the, the the visual of that um, that sort of description about what might actually be going on. I really appreciate that. Have you heard of the notion of sketch noting? Is that something that you're familiar with? Um, maybe maybe tell me what what you mean by it, and I'll tell you whether I'm familiar with it. Sure. Just I mean, is it like are, is it like mind mapping? A little bit like mind mapping. Um, which mind mapping generally would use words and, and, and sort of make those connections. Sketchnoting has become um, really a, a, a way of visual note-taking almost where sometimes an image that the note-taker might have heard something that's been happening for the last three, four minutes of a conversation or a presentation and then they visually capture that as a trigger to actually remember what that was about and then they might draw arrows and and link that to it might be an actual quote that they write down and then there might be a you know a, a container that sort of holds those two ideas together so and then they're putting all that onto one page so there's a visual snapshot of that that whole book or that chapter or that presentation or that you know that that lecture or or whatever mm. uh, yeah look i Imagine, I don't know it specifically, but uh, I imagine that would be pretty helpful. Um, to any technique that allows you to uh, visualize uh, links, conceptual links, and, and how facts relate to one another or concepts relate to one another, generally those sorts of techniques are, are, are pretty effective. Um, uh, and they are just 
taking what should normally be in your mind anyway, and an expert, it would be very implicit, it would just be in there already. But for a new learner, uh, making that explicit, putting that uh, externally onto a sheet of paper or onto a, a spreadsheet or something, I think can be pretty useful. You've reminded me something else that I thought is relevant to say here, and that is, you know, as a scientist, um, one of the things that is really important is always to um, base one sort of knowledge and learning on an evidence base. Um, and one of the things I've learned in uh, working more and more with teachers, particularly secondary school teachers in the Science of Learning Research Centre, is that um, there's, there's not a lot of evidence-based practice in, in teaching and learning. Um, teachers are incredibly dedicated, usually incredibly smart, and they have good intuitions about teaching, but they're often time poor and they don't have time to go to the relevant literature to work out what's the evidence base for this technique. Um, is it more effective than another technique that I could be implementing in class? And so one of the messages that, that I would have and something I've learnt myself in the context of uh, learning, school learning in particular, is always look for the evidence base, whether you're a teacher or, or a student, what's the evidence base that a technique works? And uh, that reminds me that there's, there's a lot of work out there at the moment on what's become known as brain training. Um, probably everyone listening to this will be familiar with that term, brain training. Um, it, it's just learning. Uh, and there's all sorts of hype around this, uh, this area. You know, um, pull up an app twice a day for 20 minutes, practice whatever the little task is, and expand your mind. Um, that's one area where there's very, very little uh, actual scientific evidence for the benefits. Um, you know, if, if your brain training app gets you to play Sudoku twice a day for 20 minutes, you definitely get better at Sudoku. But the holy grail is you want to show generalization. You want to show that doing that task, using 40 minutes of your life a day, is going to get you better at remembering where you parked your car or um, better at remembering somebody's phone number or a more effective reader and listener and so on. And there's very little scientific evidence for that. So as a little bit of an aside, but just wanting to sort of say that I think when, whenever we um, advocate for techniques to improve learning, what's really important is to look at uh, what does the science say, what's the evidence base, and, and take our cues from that. I really appreciate that. One of my questions was going to be around, are there tips or tricks to help us improve our memory and increase, you know, uh, the, the use and the capacity of our, our mind? And But there is no evidence, I'm I'm about to say, there is there is no evidence to support what I'm about to, to offer. However, I would imagine that having conversations like this is one way to, to stimulate, to make connections, to um, keep exercising and practicing what's going on in our brain. I'm fascinated by um, your responses and, and, and this conversation, for me at least, is, uh, is fascinating. So I really appreciate and value your time and your generosity. I wonder if we can move to what, what I call the lightning round. I've got a couple of quick-fire questions. Basically, we're going to delve back into your memories of school. For example, what house were you in? Uh, what house? Arnott. Well done. Uh, if you had to choose between uh, house aths or house swimming, what would your choice be? <laughs> um, house swimming. Is there a musical or a performance or a drama that you recall either being part of or being in the audience for while you're at school? 
Uh, yes, I think Guys and Dolls. And were you in and it I or was, were you on the... S- no, I was in the audience. Very good. <laughs> is there a, a, a book or a documentary that you think is critical listening, watching, reading, consuming for young people today? 1984. Is that one you studied when you were a, a young man? Yep, uh, I studied it in I, maybe it was year ten or year eleven, and it was it was a striking book then. But I must admit, over the Christmas period just just gone by, I read it again, and uh, it's it's very very continues to be incredibly relevant. And there are lots of concepts in there that are, are relevant to the world we live in today. And I would urge any student who hasn't read it or any person who hasn't read it for a while to go back and read it again. That's a great recommendation. And uh, I love the idea that those classics, those great, whether they be stories or, or ideas, you can go back to them again and again and again and find new information. There's new insights that you can gain from them. So that's a great recommendation. Do you recall a, an excursion that you went on while you were at Yarra where something happened or it was, it was a really cool place to go and visit? Did you leave somebody behind and the bus had to go back and get them or... Something interesting or funny happened on the excursion? Well, I can tell you about something that happened. One really fond memory I have, Yarra, is the camps, uh, going out to Glen Maggie. And uh, I remember we used to call it the survival camp. It was a week where you'd be on your own and, and out in the bush and, and have to make your way and camp and carry everything. And the very first day when I was a student on the survival camp, the very first day we got to camp, we uh, got off the bus uh, set up our tents and we were told to, um, to to make a little area for our campfire and then be ready for a, a general meeting uh, with, with everyone in the year level, you know, some instructions on what was going to happen over the next week. And we had the bright idea that we would, we would actually start our campfire. We'd get it going so by the time we came back from this meeting we would have, uh, have some nice coals and we could cook on it. So we did this and we, we built up this thing and it gradually became something like a bonfire. But meanwhile, off we went and sat at this, uh, sat at this general meeting and suddenly we heard shouts from 20 metres away and it was one of the camp leaders. Our, our fire had got so large that it had actually ignited a, a tree that was next to it. And this entire tree was up in flames and it was, it was very dry. It was a bit like the conditions we have at the moment. Uh, very dry, and there was a real worry that this was going to cause a, a bushfire. And the only way we could stop it was two or three of the camp leaders got axes out and chopped two or three trees down that were ablaze to prevent it from spreading. So this was literally within one hour of starting the survival camp, we'd nearly burnt the whole of Glen Maggie down. So that that sticks in the memory. <laughs> that one uh, now, for many of us, particularly... Uh, as we speak, is is definitely a memory that's going to uh, send and, and so innocent and yet yep. the potential there for uh, disaster is is very high. Uh, Could have been devastating. Um, <laughs> is there a, a habit or an app or a general philosophy that gets you up and about? It might be a, a regular routine of, of your morning routine or you mentioned before about the importance of sleep. Is there something that you not... I guess, if you like, a life hack, something that you find to be really helpful and useful in your experience. Well, as, as someone who spends a lot of time in the lab reading and writing as a scientist, 
for me, what's really important is to have um, downtime, to have something else, some other go-to activity that can get my head out of the science space. Um, and so for me, that takes the form of um, regular exercise. I think it's incredibly important. Um, and so I'm a swimmer. Um, every, every day I, I, I go for a swim. Uh, and I think that's incredibly important. And the other thing is I like music, so I play the guitar. I'm not very good, uh, but I still take lessons. I have a guitar teacher and uh, it's good for me to be in a position of the learner rather than, you know, the, the professor who's giving his advice on everything. It's good for me to be in a situation where I'm the learner and I'm the one who doesn't know what's coming next. So those two things are exercise and, and something that you can use in your downtime to, to, to give you a, a welcome distraction. They're, they're pretty valuable, I think. Very much so. We're speaking with Jason Mattingly from the class of 1982. Jason, a little test for you. Lavavi Oculus, it's our school motto. Do you recall what it means? And then what does it mean? <laughs> um, now, let me think about that. I, 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 I could probably guess based on the Latin, it's, it's something I, I raise my eyes or does that sound yes, about that's, right? That's good. If, if nowadays we would say to, to lift up your eyes. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, well, to me, I think the, the idea there would be to, in a way, look beyond the obvious what's in front of me now and to look at the bigger picture to think about to think about the bigger picture and to strive perhaps um, lifting one's eyes perhaps um, is a metaphor for lifting one's expectations one's um, standards one's hopes for for oneself you know and for the world so um, you know imagining uh, imagining the world as a better place and and seeing how you can contribute to that. That's great. And and, uh, and I would think it encapsulates all of those things. This podcast is called Inspired by Yarra. And you can't just say Yarra, but what's something that inspires you? Oh, um, at the moment, to be honest, it's my students. Um, the students who are the new leaders, new thought leaders of the future, I'm inspired by them. Um, they, they're hungry to learn and I, I love that. I think, you know, as we get older, the temptation is to um, stick to routine. And so I'm constantly being challenged uh, to think about, you know, what I can learn as well. So my students, they're, they're my inspiration, to be honest. That's fantastic. Jason, you've been really generous with your time. I've only got one more question before we wrap it up and, and say thank you. And that is, what's the one question that you were really hoping that I would ask that I haven't asked? Ask the question and then give us an answer. Uh, um, oh, well, I thought you might ask me about, you know, specific teachers uh, at the school or who was my favourite teacher or who was my least favorite teacher or something. And to be honest with you, I, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't because I'm not sure what my answer would be. I do have a memory of individual teachers, but they're just names to the current crop of students. So probably a bit meaningless anyway. If there happened to be some other students from the class of 1982 who would like to continue that conversation with you or other people who might want to get in touch, is there a way that people could look up? Because I know, I mean, you're a prolific writer. You've um, been a part of research for, for so many years. If people want to know more about you, where might they be able to go? 
Oh, well, um, just if you go to the University of Queensland uh, website, then you'll certainly find um, links to, to me, type my name into the, the browser at UQ. Um, but in fact, if you just do a Google search, Jason Mattingly, um, I'll, I'll come up. There aren't many Jason Mattingly's around, so I, I think I might be the top hit there. And, and then you can link from there. But University of Queensland website, you'll, you'll find everything you wanted to know and lots that you didn't as well, probably. That's fantastic. Jason, thank you for your time. Thanks for your generosity. Thank you for continuing to make an impact in the world in, in areas that most of us take for granted, really, and you're seeking to find out how it works and, and really what's next. And, and perhaps if I had the opportunity to continue our conversation, and maybe we might have to get you back on, and that would be to explore what is next, what's the new frontier, what, what, what are you just on the cusp of discovering? But we might uh, save that as a teaser and, uh, and find out more about that next time. Great Professor Jason Mattingly, thank you for your time. Thank you for your contribution. Thank you for being inspired by and continuing to be an inspiration to Yarra. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Goodness gracious me. What, what a thinker. What a interesting fellow fascinating insights into the brain and really a dip into how much yet there is still to be discovered and I feel pleased that people like Professor Jason Mattingly are on the job because he knows things about you and I and how we tick and how we function that I'm pleased at least somebody knows. What a good guy, what a thinker, what a uh, forward thinker in terms of that willingness to keep striving, to keep searching, to keep looking, to keep trying to understand how all of the bits fit together. Here at the Inspired by Yarra podcast, we aim to keep our community connected and see how the parts all function together as one. As Yogs, you are encouraged to Look us up on LinkedIn and join the group Yarra All Grammarians Connect in order to stay in touch with a wider YOG community. But you might not be a YOG. You might have just stumbled across this episode because it's something that you're interested in. Maybe you're a current student of Yarra Valley Grammar. Maybe you're a parent, just an interested bystander. Well, thanks for joining along and, uh, and coming on for a bit of this ride. And I hope that you found it engaging and interesting along the way. Therefore, I hope you'll come back next episode and join us again as we sit down with another Yarra Old Grammarian and see how they too have been inspired by Yarra. My name's Paul Joy and on behalf of everyone here at Yarra and those who work particularly on this program and put it together each episode, I want to wish you another day of inspiration where you go out there and make a positive impact in the world around you. you.